Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to this week's show. Joining me on the mic today is JB Brown. Now I met JB through a mutual friend and recently collaborated with him at an event in Tampa, which was focused on mergers and acquisitions via our good friends, our good mutual friends, Amber Spears. Now, JB himself is an advisor. He's an M&A guru. He runs a consultancy, an advisory firm called White Buffalo Advisors, where he has worked on something like $200 million worth of business deals in a brokering capacity, in a strategic capacity. Now, what was interesting, when we spoke recently together in Tampa, I loved a couple of things about JB. Firstly, his way of connecting with people is world-class. He's got a deep knowledge of finance, uh, business leadership, creative problem solving, and, and really matching people together and listening and being very, very curious and intent with the way he asks questions. So I wanted to have him on the show today because I don't think you can get enough of two people who know the M&A space, the acquisitions, the exit space, going backwards and forwards on various strategies, tactics, and the things that are working in this crazy world of M&A today. The intersection of greatness and business, and there's this concept that, you know, we are limited by the things that are weaknesses or that make us defective. And, and uh, I contend that those actually often end up being some of the superpowers that we have. So the next sort of 40 minutes or so, sit back and relax, enjoy the conversation. We're gonna talk about all the things that we've experienced. We're gonna talk about some of the complexities of how deals get done as well. So if you have the ambition of scaling your business via acquisitions, or indeed you have the intention of exiting your business, then you are gonna learn a lot from this episode. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, JB Brown. Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week and another episode of Scale Up. Today, I have my good friend JB Brown on the show. Now, JB, I'll let him introduce himself properly in a second, but just to give you a bit of a flavor, he kind of plays in a similar space to me. He's into acquisitions. He's been involved in multiple exits. Uh, he specifically focuses on some really interesting areas around the M&A space, which we're going to get into today. In fact, a topic we haven't covered in detail, which is all about partnerships. But before we do that, I would like you firstly to meet JB. So welcome to the show. Thank you, my friend. It's so great to spend some time with you. Yeah, we, we um, connected recently, actually. We were in Tampa together, speaking uh, on the same stage at a mastermind that was focused pretty much purely on M&A, wasn't it, for, for a couple of days? Yeah, absolutely, it was. Yeah, and that was cool. I mean, what was great about it was that um, there were some different perspectives around everything from the very beginning about how do you raise sort of venture capital all the way through to the complexities that exist within M&A generally. And then, of course, exiting. What were some of the takeaways you had from that, JB? I tell you, it may be a little bit unusual and off the cuff, but what really struck me is I know a fair amount about the folks that were going to be in that room. What took me by surprise as you were speaking and as I was speaking and some of the other just tremendous folks that we were able to bring in was how much work we have to do as a community, you know, of M&A professionals to, to educate folks, because there's this tendency to assume that people know a lot more than they do, because things that Dunning-Kruger or whatever you want to call it, things that become second nature to us that are just obvious, they're not. They're not to folks who are in the weeds day to day running a business. And the things that we would say 
oh yeah, you definitely have to do this. Quality of earnings was one that came up mm, more than yeah. once in that situation where folks were just like, what's a quality of earnings report and why would you need that? Why does it matter? And it's so easy to say, well, how could you not know that you need a quality of earnings? So uh, to wrap a bow uh, around that, it, it, it really, it left me challenged to show up in a better way and to do a lot more content and to have more interactions that just are more educational and conversational in nature to say, hey, this is this is what you can expect, whether you're looking to make an exit or an acquisition. And here are the things that you may want to, you know, educate yourself on. How about you? Yeah, similar, S similar to that, I think. Uh, and it kind of comes back to something I've been working on recently, which is the vision of my sort of businesses and consultancy i've actually kind of re gone back and looked at that again and i'm going to do a separate podcast on this because it's been an interesting exercise mm -hmm. and one of the things that struck me to kind of build on what you said is the amount of misinformation yeah. right well there's two things actually there's two things one is the expectation that if you can you know grow a business scale a business to a reasonable size that you should naturally know how everything else fits together from the M&A landscape, particularly the exiting side. Mm. And there's almost this kind of like, I'm embarrassed to not know, so therefore I'm not gonna ask questions, right? Yeah. There's, there, there's that piece. And then there's kind of like, you know, um, lots and lots of marketing out there around M&A and different, different things happening around that. Some really great, some, some not so, but again, it makes it look simpler than mm. it is. And, you know, my book's coming out, as you know, very soon where I'm sort of trying to demystify some of that. But the main thing I'm trying to do, and I've kind of thought about this a lot, is level the playing field. That's kind of the summary, which is if you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, and you have the uh, ambition to, to build a high value company and exit it, that when you are going to transition that company, you have the skills, the, the strategies, tactics, resources to do that successfully. And I think that that really struck me in that room as how big the gap is sometimes, even though there are a lot of people there who've got great businesses, as you said. Absolutely. And it, it, it ties into this, um, this concept. And there was a book about it, the, the author, his name escapes me at the moment, but it was essentially this concept of no man's land. And simply put what I find often and just my own experience founding and scaling businesses and then exiting them, or even before that in my corporate career or working with clients who are in the same position is often the things that were required to get us to whatever point we're at, whatever level of success we're at, whatever level of failure we're at, sometimes both at the same time. Um, those are often very different traits and behaviors that are going to be required to get to the next level. And there's a gap in between what got you to where you are and all the things that you had to be in order to do that. And then what's going to be necessary of you if you wanna take the next step. It, it's sometimes an entirely different person is required because they're just they're different um, motivations and skills that are necessary. My experience is that the same is true of a lot of different aspects of business, including an exit. The thing that makes you likely to have a successful exit from a skills perspective, uh, your ability to process information, and even your temperament may be 180 degrees different from the level of success you were able to have with those same traits to grow the business. You know, if you're someone who's just a hard driver and, um, you know, you're sort of a hammer, like to a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you have that sort of hard driving, <laughs> go get it. I'm going to crush it. Um, personality. You can be wildly successful when it comes time to make an exit. If you are an extreme version of that personality, 
the negotiations may not go well. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's just a different type of um, thing, but I, yeah, I agree with you. I think you make a great point. And I've, I've felt, I think a lot about legacy. You get to a point in your career where you've done enough things that novelty starts to wear off for me. Anyway, you begin to care less about um, additional wealth. It's just a, it's a scorecard really. And, and it's a measure of something that you brought value to. Well, it becomes to me and I have children, so this may be part of it, but it becomes about legacy. And when I think about legacy, um, what I'm becoming aware of very recently, especially is that um, just being a conduit of, of good information in a sea of information that put delicately may or may not be good. Um, that's an, that's a legacy thing that I can hang my hat on and, and be proud of. Very good. Well, I think what we'll do today, because I want to kind of go into the lane that I promised at the beginning of this, is we're going to talk specifically, very, very specifically about partnerships within business, but also partnerships in terms of what can happen when you are preparing a business for exit mm -hmm. for sale, the different conflicts, as well as opportunities. Before we get into that as a, as a very specific topic um, around kind of exit strategy and exit planning, let's just learn a little bit more about UJB. So your background, you know, what you've done uh, and also, you know, what you're doing now, what the focus is now. I know that you have an advisory called White Buffalo Advisors and you're involved in this space, but let's just go into a bit more detail around that. Sure. So uh, to put it bluntly, I grew up uh, what I would call water on cornflakes poor uh, in New England in the US. Is that a thing? Do people actually do that? Well, I did. I don't know if anybody else did. I feel like probably not, but you know, that's what we had. So water on cornflakes poor. Um and was fortunate to be a good athlete, really. And so that athletic ability was sort of the, the catalyst for me being able to get opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to get. So uh, boarding school, college, all of those things. And went the corporate route for a long, long time. Started my career in um, the finance industry, sort of inadvertently found myself in sales functions, uh, like most former athletes. And then, um, worked into the medical device and biotechnology space. And from there, I had a you know decade and a half long career just selling um, anything from biotech raw ingredients to $10 million surgical robots. Transitioned out of sales into what wasn't called, but eventually I became to understand was really a consulting role. And so got very adept at working with large, large companies to identify you know, what are barriers to success in whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish here, whether that's an improved surgical program, improved profitability metrics, retention of key staff, training, didn't matter what it was. And so did that for quite a long time. And then at the sort of tail end of that, I figured out that what I really was, was an entrepreneur and I never knew it because I was acting as an entrepreneur within a larger organization. And <clears throat> The thing about working for a large organization is that through no fault of anyone's, it just started to grate on my nerves because <laughs> I wanted to call. How long did I you last before that happened? Oh man, when I started feeling that itch, if you want to call it that, it was just shy of 18 months, which was wow, shocking. Okay. So that's given, pretty quick then. So you weren't there for that long. Really was. It was, it was almost a you know, sort of crisis of sorts, but um, I had began to purchase businesses uh, while I was still employed because I've, I bought into this idea that at the time and still is being uh, sold that, well, you can, you can just buy a business and you don't really have to do anything and, and somebody else can do all the, the work for you. And so, you know, at the time I remember I spent 
had a partner and uh, and spent. I was the capital guy and spent a whole bunch of my money, most of my life savings, which at the time was substantial to me. And it was a catastrophic failure in every possible way. It was a franchise. Um, right. Not that all franchises are, are bad, but that one didn't work out so well. And boy, did I, I got beat with the, the, the wisdom stick on every branch on the way down of the tree. Um, because <laughs> about every mistake that you could make, I, I think I did and we did. And, um, so that's what got me into true entrepreneurship. It's also what created the the spark of a lifelong interest in the dynamics between partners and folks who work together and understanding those dynamics because it would be easy and, and you, to say, well, this guy was dishonest, this girl, you know, that. Here's the thing. It's always our fault. It is always our fault. I believe in, in radical accountability. And so... I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't follow up well. Uh, I didn't fully understand the personality of the partner that I had, what their skill sets were, what my skill sets were, and how those things would interact with one another. So fast forward, uh, I decided to found a business. Actually, when that first business failed, I remember just having this horrific depression for for a few days, you know, probably weeks, and, and feeling like, gosh, I've I've let this this now young family down. I've burned through our savings. I'm an idiot. You know, how could I have done that? I'm never going to do business again. I know I can, worst case, I can go sell. So I'll go get a job selling something. That, I think that lasted four weeks before I started another business. <laughs> and it was a uh, private label. You know, I started a white, private label Amazon business. It wasn't white label. It was actually a product that I um, sourced and created and and started to sell on Amazon. And this is this is quite a while ago now. Uh, built that one up, added a bunch of products to it, sold it. In the process of doing that, had to go to Asia and all sorts of other wonderful places and learn different cultures and different ways of doing business. And you know, China was an incredible MBA crash course in negotiation and what not to do. Uh, so just and, give us a time check on this now. So at mm -hmm. what, uh, how many years ago is this happening? This is 10 years ago. This is okay. about 10 years ago that I started getting into um, Asia. And offloaded that one business, um, nice little multiple, um, really had been one of the easier businesses that I'd ever created because I'm not, I'm not going to the factory. I'm not making anything. I'm not even anywhere near the factory. I'm not having, I don't have to have a warehouse. I don't have to, um, I don't have to have inventory costs necessarily in terms of holding them. So everything was really tight supply chain, direct from Asia, direct into an Amazon warehouse, very tight supply chain controls. Um, and so in doing that, some people, some people started asking me, Hey, can you help me with finding a product or sourcing a better deal for my product? And so I just started doing it as a, as a favor. And that led to owning a, uh, shipping and logistics company and a training company where we would take folks to mostly China, um, sometimes India and in Latin America. And, and if they had an interest in developing a product, we would help them do that meet suppliers, vet suppliers, negotiate contracts that were, um, favorable and protected, you know, their interests to the best of their ability and, you know, how to launch those things. And so from there sold that company, uh, and then did one more company that was actually in, um, home services. And so throughout that time, I'm also consulting, um, cause I, I've always had a heart to listen to the real challenges that business people in particular are facing and to try to help them if I can to work through them. 
And so all of that together, especially the exits, Nick, led me with, left me with this feeling that I didn't really like business brokers that much. Um, sorry to other business brokers. Oh, there's quite there. a few that listen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and investment really bankers, like they, they don't like it when I kind of say stuff. But, you know, as I always say to contextualize it, there are good and bad in everything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so had a really negative um, perception of business brokers. To this day, there's one from that very first business who, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a very guy that holds on to anger, but I think I might do physical harm to him if I saw him. But uh, the funny thing was, <laughs> if I, as I, as I sort of work, walked through all those exits and I had money and, and I was doing some consulting and I really could have been done financially, I could have been done. And the darndest thing happened, I wasn't fulfilled. And I couldn't quite figure out why I'm like, I achieved more than I ever thought that I would what's happening here. And throughout some sort of self exploration, it was just Oh, well, I wasn't just put here to make money, I was put here to, to bring value and provide impact. So had some friends, same thing, some friends were like, Hey, I'm gonna sell my business. And this is what we're hearing. Would you help me? I'm like, I don't want to be a business broker. No, but I'll look at it. You know, and I'll tell you what I think and looked at it, pissed me off. <laughs> Everything was the way that the deal was structured. Didn't make any sense at all. And I ended up doing that one as a favor and I loved it. Uh, I found that it was a lot of fun helping somebody prepare for an exit and to avoid just some of the bear traps that I had fallen into. It was very fulfilling. So that led to a career as a mergers and acquisitions advisor. And so that, that looks different depending upon the client I'm working with. Sometimes it's probably similar to you, or I'll work with folks in preparation for an exit. If there are partnership issues, that's one of the things I enjoy working on the most in terms of the day-to-day, -day, as you mentioned, and how to sort of coexist in a way that is productive to the business and, um, and provides intrinsic value to you. And also how to make sure that when it's time to make an exit, there's not, um, there's not a ticking time bomb, which absolutely can happen when there are partners involved in, in that's generally when competing agendas reveal themselves is when the rubber hits the road, everyone sees the end of the line and what even we think we want and what are important to us, it can change in an instant when there's the- Let's get into that. Yeah. Let's get into that because I'll, I'll give you a scenario, a recent one of a business that I was um, working with where you had three shareholders mm -hmm. and a pretty- pretty big exit, you know, incoming, as in uh, had built a business that's very, very specific, does a very specific thing in a market where it's very acquisitive. And you've got one shareholder, imagine for now, they're all equal, just for the argument of the, the, the conversation, they all have a kind of an equal say is probably a better way of saying that. And you've got one that's in their 50s, late 50s, you've got two that are in their sort of mid 30s. Mm -hmm. and there's a disagreement on the number. Mm. Okay. Are you with me on this? So, yeah. so the, the older partner has, you know, a, a smaller number <laughs> that they want for obvious reasons. Um, you know, potentially they want to kind of cash in the chips, but the others want to hold on. Right. Mm. And the business isn't worth yet exactly what the other so you want versus the other one. I'm with you. So that let's play this situation. What do you do then? What yeah, happens then? Great question. These are fun. I'm getting excited thinking about it. I knew it. you would be. I knew you'd like this. And, and I, I raised this not only because it's a live thing that happened recently that I was involved in, but this happens. 
you know, oh. when you're planning an exit for everyone listening, like I talk about getting clear on your number, you've got to get clear on your number. Yes, but you've got to get clear on the number of the other shareholders that are certainly very important in the operation of the business. So, so let's kick mm. this around JB. Yeah. So when I, when I come into a scenario like that, the first thing that I feel my responsibility is, is to seek first to understand what exactly, and you alluded to this, what exactly each relevant party really wants. What do they truly want? And often it's not what they say that they want, and it may not even be what they understand that they want. So money is an interesting thing. So in the case of an exit, you know, let's just pick numbers here just for argument's sake. Let's say that your gentleman who was older thought to himself, you know, I'm, I'm toward the downside of my career. Maybe I have some savings set aside from other things that I've done, or I have some income streams that are passive from investments and I'm ready to wind down. And for me, um, if I have 33% of this, and let's say the company's going to sell for a million bucks, you know, $333,000 is plenty. I'm happy with that. I'll walk away. I'll stick it in a, you know, an IRA and, and, and or a brokerage account and call it a day. Well, if you have the other two who are in their thirties and they're looking to a much longer runway of things that they still need to accomplish. Their number one is probably going to be different for, for a practical reason. They don't have, they have to fund more time on their runway. The other thing that can happen is there can be a ego component to this. So the first thing I would do is I would split them all up and I would just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with all of them and anchor that with the understanding that in a frictionless world, a frictionless world, if you could get everything that you wanted in, in an exit, what would it be specifically? And I let them unpack that. And as they're unpacking it, I'm listening to not just what they say, but I'm listening to how they say it. I'm trying to read body language to see if there are any sort of inconsistencies between what they're saying and what happens to their body or their micro expressions, because all I'm looking for is what really matters to you. Is it you're looking for security for your family? Is it that you you feel that your contribution to the effort of the organization to get to this point is disproportionate to the other two guys? And you need to be compensated to an equally disproportionate level because that's only fair because I was more important than Bob and Joe. Maybe we can address that. But if 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 the other two are not aware that you feel that way, it's impossible to address that. So you have to understand truly what everyone's end goal is. And then also how quickly do they need it? Because you, you threw a little nuance in there that people who listen to your show probably will pick up on, but I don't want to assume it. What you can get today for a business may not be the same thing as what you can get for a business in 18 months. If you make incremental steps to improve any number of things in the business. So that leaves you with a quandary if you're one of three partners who have different timelines in your mind and different end goals. Would I rather take the money today at whatever that amount is and walk away and there's disproportionate value to me because I have peace of mind or whatever that is? Or do I want to maximize the amount of money that I get out of it and I'm willing to suffer through some discomfort, whatever that may look like, in order to get it? If those two goals are not aligned, you cannot move forward. So in your scenario, I would present a few options. One, the obvious, 
is there a way to come to a common agreement over what today's valuation of the business is? And then simple math, what is the older gentleman's Let's say seasoned. I like seasoned. seasoned I'm older, so I, like I don't like, like old Every time I say old, I kind of think I have to put myself, put in, myself in the bucket, and I don't exactly. like it. Exactly. We don't want to do that. We're se- seasons, seasoned, seasoned, experienced. The more people. seasoned, experienced veteran. That, that works. I like that. Nice, uh, yeah. nice uh, transition into that. Um, what's his? What? Are, what's his share worth? And is there a way for us to essentially buy him out? Or at least to maybe not in cash and, and people their mind immediately goes there and they say well gosh if i'm if there's three of us and one of the partners wants out and their current today value of that we all agree upon of their shares is whatever three hundred and thirty three thousand dollars how are we going to come up with three hundred and thirty three thousand dollars well you don't necessarily have to come up with all of that in cash you simply have to come to a, a par agreement that his value is this and you're going to pay him that amount over whatever period of time you can do it over time you can do it over time with a balloon in the case of an exit there are a lot of things you can do it allows the person who's already moving on mentally to pop out the escape hatch and be done and it will remove that uh stick in the mud so to speak you know not that it's necessarily they're wrong or right but it will remove that impediment from a greater value and also continuing to work toward uh, improving the company and it will allow for upside of the two who believe the company will be worth more and are willing to continue to do the work very good very good do you want to hear what happened (laughs) i would love to yeah i would love to so 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 the numbers are bigger right so this is where it becomes a bit more complex but the the thinking is the same right so the numbers are 100 million Mm. right so we're looking at 33 million each broadly broadly and of course, you know, however clever you can get in structuring a deal, you know, getting 33 million out of the ground is not always easy. <laughs> Finding no. 300 grand might be because you can mortgage a house yeah, or whatever, pretty you easy, live yeah. in a castle or an island. Anyway, so long story short, um, because this kind of lend, lends itself a little bit into the private equity space, um, we, we couldn't in this situation sell the company to a corporate or strategic entity mm-hmm. because the only way that the younger partners could get to their number is if they could then roll over their equity through yeah. a private equity transaction. So effectively what we call selling the, selling the company twice or having the opportunity to do so. So even though the number for the seasoned <laughs> seasoned partner, we like that, um, was close to kind of what he wanted to achieve, the number was miles off for whatever reason. And I like the way you you ask the questions around the why, but for whatever reason, miles off. So therefore there was never going to be a situation in that where the seasoned partner was going to hang around to get to that. So this is where private equity does play a good role here because they can come in and effectively buy the company buy certainly buy out um, the other gentleman, uh, but make sure that the two younger ones, the ones who want to kind of go out there and make a lot more money have the opportunity to do so. But, mm. but it's an interesting point. I mean, that's, that's a practical example of a couple of different, in fact, I quite like the fact that we talked about how that could work for a, for a company that's of a, of a lower value versus a higher value and the differences. But what about, what about just generally partnerships where you get to a point, like we talked about, there's a way of getting potentially to a, a win-win. Mm-hmm. What if there isn't? Yeah. I mean, you, share some personal perspectives here because you, before we press record, you did talk about, and we both talked about actually partnerships that haven't mm. quite met expectations. Mm. Yeah, I'll share one that's specific. Obviously, I won't name names, but what I've learned doing this 
well and doing this poorly and seeing others do it well and poorly is it all starts with a really solid partnership agreement and or operating agreement. Um, many businesses, surprising number, don't have that. And the darndest thing is you would think that, okay, mm. this is more likely with businesses that are whatever, sub $10 million. I recently saw a $200 million company that did not have a partnership agreement because, and you can understand how this would happen, they didn't start at $200 million. They just hit on something that went big and it did well and it went well and it went well and it went well. So there was never really any need. There was always this idea that, oh, we'll go back and we'll do a partnership agreement, but there was never a need until there was. You remind me of a, of a comment that I say quite often in, in a different context, but it works here. It's better to kill the monster when it's small. Because yes. <laughs> right? you're right, exactly like, right. You don't expect it. I mean, and, and actually, as you said that point, I was thinking about this. There are heaps of businesses that I get involved in that are in the eight figure range that don't have them. Yeah. And then you try and retrofit them, shareholders mm -hmm. agreements or whatever else. And there's huge amounts of complexity because the stakes are so much bigger there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So my best advice is to don't get yourself into this situation. If you can, if you're starting something new or you're entering into something, take the time, take the time to really execute a well thought out shareholders agreement partnership. It depends on the structure of your company, but functionally same, same understand. And here's what you base it upon. What is the, what I call relative value contribution? What is the relative value contribution of each party specifically? Do not leave assumption open to interpretation, not because there's a lack of trust or because you, you think that the other person is going to screw you. It's not that. I, I don't believe, and my experience has not been, that very many folks go into a deal looking to screw the other person when it starts. I really don't. It's just that our human nature kicks in and we start to believe things that may or may not be true. And, and in some cases, truth can be relative. So it's very important when you go into something like this to understand who's going to do what, how will their equity and compensation be handled for doing that. And you also have to look a little bit into the future and understand that uh, an equal partnership day one may not, which was fair, may no longer be fair if five years later, one of the partners is on the beach and isn't operationally or strategically involved in the business at all, but still owns 50% of the company. And then you have a 50% partner who's doing all the work, working 70 hours a week and they're you know, they're sacrificing time with their family, their health and all these things. Now that's a very different situation than the one you went into. So the deal that I went into that did not go well was um, slightly different. And some of your folks can relate to this uh, bought into an existing business. So I remember I told you I had the company that was doing training and um, yeah. shipping and logistics. Well, bought into another company that was doing the same thing. It was essentially a merger. And the challenge was I had met this gentleman. He was sort of a guru. Uh, and I had met this gentleman in that space and, um, you know, we'd always had interactions that were positive and, and pleasant enough guy and on video and in his, you know, seemed to really know what he was talking about. And I had at this point, and this is almost 10 years ago, no, it's more than 10 years ago. Um, I didn't have any experience in the guru world. I thought if you're on video and you have ads about you and courses you must say there wasn't that many around well actually that's no. probably that's probably there probably was heaps around but you didn't see them as readily as you do now with no, you instagram don't. and youtube and everything else like that no and then i would say they weren't nearly as sophisticated there were a few but you didn't have the the, the level of funnels and monetization that you you have this is well i call it pre pre-click funnels um, yeah pre 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 all the brilliant marketing or the yes conversion so, marketing or whatever 
what I figured out was, so I put a whole bunch of money into that thing and we were taking people to China on trips. And, and when we would get there, I'm admittedly, I'm a very particular person. I'm easygoing, but when it comes to business and the way uh, something flows, I can be a bit particular. And so if I take someone's money and I say that I'm going to take them to China and I'm going to teach them how to source, how to validate, how to find products, how to get those products negotiated and how to get them shipped to the US and launched. I'm going to do that plus probably a few extra things just because just just over deliver. Well, we would get there and there's no itinerary, there's no schedule, there's no real logical flow of what we're doing. It's just disorganized. And that in and of itself grates on my nerves because I also have just flown 19 hours with my 260 pound butt in a seat. Admittedly, it was a nice seat, but it's still a seat for that long um, to China and, and I'm here to get business done and to go home. And it just, things like that were popping up that just seemed to be incongruous business philosophies. That's number one mistake on my part. Didn't do enough um, due diligence on the person and the business philosophies. Well, then there was talk of this mastermind. And at the time, I didn't even know what that was. Um, we're gonna do a mastermind. We're gonna bring people in and they'll pay a, a, an annual amount of money. And then for that annual amount of money, they'll get special top secret insider access to us. I'm like, okay, I didn't, all right. So. I was I was not in favor of it because my philosophy at the time was well let's let's make sure that the things that we are offering we're offering them at an incredibly high level such that anyone who's finished with that and is still left wanting more then we can offer them that but until we're doing these other things at an incredibly high level and folks are getting value out of it and we've proven concept and we can clearly show a line between working with us and what we're doing and their success I don't want to offer a mastermind it's just more money so we agreed, I thought. And then uh, months and months go by and I'm getting a phone call to sue you and your family and your partner. I literally did not know who this lady was or what she was talking about. And so, you know, I'm not a very reactive guy. So I'm like, okay, I just need you to back up a little bit and explain what it is that you're talking about, why you're suing me and what we can do to fix it because I don't have any idea what's happening. Turns out he sold a number of folks a $25,000 annual mastermind and delivered nothing. Didn't tell me he had sold them. And so. So what, what happened? Did he, did he run off with it? Oh, it gets better. Oh, so um, <laughs> that, it, the, the, the obvious question you would ask when you found that out, even if you were giving someone the highest possible benefit of the doubt, which I, I like to try to do was, okay, well, are we in a cash flow issue that I didn't know about? And was there something that he felt he needed to sell and he was just doing it himself and delivering that value himself? Like, let me just ask the question. I asked the question, didn't love the answer, brought me down a rabbit hole into what became mistake number two, which was I trusted my partner too much and I did not have a daily pulse on the, the profit and loss of that company. I just was sort of trusting him to handle it. And he did create a scenario where that's really what he wanted. Um, but I was happy to do that and to sort of just be the guy that came in and delivered value to folks when I was there and checked in with them and, and all that. Well, the question you would get from that is where did all that money go? So then I start going down this rabbit trail and I figure out, uh Oh, like, we're not profitable. And not only that, 
the last time that I had been with him, we were in Las Vegas and we used to do all these tag on events to big industry things where he would keynote or I would keynote and, and all that. And we ended up having this party at this place called, um, I think it's, it's a 12 Oak or something Oak. It's one of the big EDM clubs in Las Vegas. And clearly you can tell looking at me by my I could tell, I could see that's, approach, that's, a, that's, that's a obviously like a, gu a guilty pleasure is what I call that, JB. Yeah, really, I, I, I don't know. I can, I'm trying to predict where this is going to end up. It doesn't sound great. Keep going. <laughs> no. So we show up and we have bottle service. We're, we're in this just, you know, special area and directly next to us is a little funny story that I realized something, you know, this was strange because I'd never been to one of these clubs before. I hated it, but we were there and I look over and I'm like, those are the little, I mean, I'm not a small man, but like, these are the largest human beings that I've ever seen. Like what is happening right now? It was the LA Lakers. <laughs> who were for some reason in town and they're next to us. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're not a company that should be springing for things similar to what the Lakers are doing in their leisure time. So what's happening? All, all that, I finally go through everything and I figure out he's using my money to finance this playboy lifestyle, this guru fame. The company itself was never profitable, should have been, but wasn't. And what really bothered me because of just who I am and the type of family first person I was, he was also using my money to pay for tickets to things to take someone to who was not his wife. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You add all that together. And, and I forgot to mention that in the middle of this, we had brought in two more partners who, who were female and um, both of them are wonderful, actually dear friends to this day. And when, when we all confronted him, I'll never forget it. We, we, we were in a, a casino in Las Vegas. We all had hotel rooms. And I said, let's meet up in his room. And we go up there and I had reams of things. I had Amex statements. I had all of it showing you're caught. You're caught red-handed being dishonest, using company resources to fund a personal lifestyle, and also taking in money that you didn't tell anybody else about. And now not only that, we are all liable because you didn't provide the services that you took the money for. Two hours of denial. And then finally, a uh, half sort of a admission and, well, you know, poor me, what did I, you know, what else could I possibly have done um, sort of thing. So it was at that exact moment that I knew we had to, I had to take the loss. It was over a half a million dollars at the time. Um, I had to take the loss. Uh, and the reason I had to take the loss was because the two women wanted to kill him. Um they were not in a position to have a conversation with him. And what I was realizing was to be candid, the half a million dollars at that time really wasn't, it wasn't going to make or break me. But the downside risk to continuing to be involved with a person who operated in the way that he did could, because there could always be more skeletons in the closet. If someone is associated with you publicly, um, you implicitly can have some downside liability and some risk because of things that they say or do and your name is on the company as well. So had to get out of there, had to negotiate our way out of it, did, took the loss. What saved me was when we were doing negotiations, we had also started a new brand and the brand was supposed to be used to show people in this inner circle how to do it. And it was sort of a over the shoulder look at how you build a brand from scratch and you, you start it. The darndest thing was he didn't know how to do that. And so as I'm looking at everything, I sensed that what mattered to him the most was all of the public facing stuff, the courses, um, the trademarks, the names, the rights to the speaking catalog, all of the things that you would, you know, that would show someone to be a successful person. I didn't give a shit 
What I cared about was what's the best way to extract the partnership and is there any asset in here that he does not value that I think I can at least turn into, you know, some sort of win. So I negotiated that he would take everything, the rights to all the courses, the right, the name of all of the groups we had created, all those things. All I wanted was the brand. Just give me the brand. He's like, you want the brand? Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, once it was all over, the three of us just poured about six months into that brand and we ended up selling it for more than we had lost just by, you know, fixing. So the what's the learning? So the, 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 obviously the first two learnings are interesting in terms of due diligence and trust. Yeah. What's, what's the final learning? Like the final learning through that, that, what, what, that you've taken forward as well from that. Yeah. It's, it's a surprising one. The final learning is every now and then I still talk to that guy. He literally committed multiple felonies in the course of that deal. And you decided I, not to go in, into a, a litigious play no. on this. No, and I'm why, why, I know, we'll get into the third thing in a second, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Why not? Because I mean, actually, I, I can tell you this, like, okay, it's, it's fine to say 500K wasn't much money at that time. I, I've lost that sort of cash. And you know what? Even today, it's painful. Oh, right? yeah. So I, I, don't like, I, don't, I don't like losing any money, really. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's more about the game than anything else, but it still pisses me off. Yeah. So it's well, great to say that, but I'm just curious. Why not? Yeah. It actually ties into the third thing. So what I realized was more about myself and more about what is the end goal. And this ties all the way back to what we talked about initially with every single partner and understanding what's really important to you. What I learned about me is that what's important to me is whatever he had chosen to do, whatever he had chosen to do, whatever his relationship was like with his wife, who was a lovely woman. I had been in that man's house. I had hugged his wife and I had held his children. And I knew that if I did what was just legally that I was entitled to, I wouldn't be ruining just his life. I would potentially be ruining the life of his wife and his children. And it wasn't worth it to me because what I knew then was I was more than capable of overcoming the loss. And so I made a hard and fast decision that not only was I not going to take what was, um, rightfully and justly mine, whether that be financial remuneration, jail time, any number of things. Not only that, I was going to give him more than he deserved in the exit. I was going to wish him well. Now, if anybody ever asks me privately, and that's happened a few times, I, I steer them in the right direction. But the thing that I learned is that once I made that decision, and here's the third thing, no matter how tense a negotiation feels, no matter how dire a situation feels between parties. This doesn't really matter, Nick, whether it's a, a business relationship, a partnership, a negotiation between buyer and seller, or a marriage or a friendship. No matter how dire something can get, you can still work through it in a productive way if you choose to do so. It just requires you to let your ego die a little bit and to look at what is in the best interests of this having a positive outcome and how can I work toward making that happen? And that lesson is the one that I implement and share the most when you have conflict issues that pop up between partners. And what I'm prone to saying is let's be tough on issues and let's be easy on people because those are not the same thing. You and I can have a passionate disagreement about something. I happen to know we like the same NBA team, so it wouldn't be that. But let's Ooh. say you <laughs> just were, as well if it was different, uh, like a, yeah, a yeah, yeah. 
then that would. Let's not be say good. that you, um, you know, because you, you and I, I like the you, like if I like the Sixers, for example. I was going to say, like let's say you're a Philadelphia 76ers fan. Like, I'm not going to respect your judgment about basketball, but when we have conversations <laughs> with each other, I can still have a conversation with you and. I can work through the things that we're able to work through. And I can also value the things that you, know, you do bring expertise to. And I can stipulate when I'm wrong and say, well, you know what? Um, maybe Antoine wasn't one of the better players of the mid nineties. I think he was, but maybe he wasn't. Um, so all that to say, it, it's, <laughs> it's uh, the non-basketball fans are like, what the hell are they talking going, about? What's going on, right? They, I, I know exactly yeah. what they're talking about. But, but um, the, you know, that's really what it is. It's, it's, do you have the ability? And here's the question that I ask myself. Have I defined success in any endeavor, in any interaction? What does success look like? And it's either something that I decide or it's something you decide as a group. And once you have decided upon what that is, the next question that I always ask me personally is, is there anything in me that has to die in order for that to happen? And if so, what is it? And is the cost of that worth it to me? And when you begin to view the world through that, it's almost a strange uh, no, slider Machiavellian I mean, thing. Yeah, I haven't heard it expressed that way before. I think that's a very um, powerful, strong way of, of of putting it, particularly the death connotation to it. But I think and it feels like that sometimes. Well, but people, but you have to maybe, as, as you said it, I was reflecting, thinking maybe you have to ask the question that way, because I, I'll give you a kind of a, a slightly different example, like people will compromise their values, right? Mm. All the time, a value in my world defined as, you know, the things that kind of, you know, light you up more so than kind of a word, like the things that you surround yourself with and you spend your time doing that kind of energize you. A lot of that's really where value sits, yeah. but they'll, they'll, they'll work longer. They'll sacrifice things that they love to do for something else. Yeah. Um, but they haven't necessarily to your point defined success. So because, mm. in other words, it becomes an endless, endless road. Yes. And they haven't really thought about what the death to use your word again is actually causing to them, uh, certainly longer term. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So I think there's a couple of things you said, actually, I also want to go back to something you said a minute ago around people versus issues. And I think the one thing again, as I reflected on that is, um, sort of emotional attachment to yeah. things versus trying the best you can to be objective because every situation does have a point of objectivity where mm -hmm. you can look at it for what it is. And if you were, if you didn't have any attachment to those things, you could look at it probably in the most purest way, but quite often we don't. Right. And, and to bring it back a little bit to exit stuff, like I often find the emotional piece just comes in really hard because you know, you've got big stakes again on the table. So all these things come into play. So, I think it's an interesting thing around partners, this whole piece. I, I think if anyone takes anything away from today's conversation, it is that the ability to, to, to remove yourself necessarily from the emotion of the situation and look at it for what it is. And yeah. this idea about, is it serving you? You know, is it causing harm to you? And is it moving you towards where you want to be? Well, and always remember this with an exit. If you want to have continuing ongoing uh, fellowship and relationship with your business partners, long after if you don't care maybe it's irrelevant but if you do long after one or more partners has exited the business then the way that you go about handling that exit is profoundly important because you can you can win the battle of the moment and get the result that you wanted financially or structurally only to lose the war and find yourself more lonely than you anticipated and Lovely. those are important things to keep in mind
I'm going to add to that quickly before we finish, which is the same thing holds true when you're negotiating with a private equity firm or a strategic and there's a, there's a, you know, a three-year earnout. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, this, this idea, we're talking a lot about partnerships, but those partnerships might be existing ones or they might be ones that are getting created through an exit. And what you don't want to do, we talk about it in terms of terms, don't we? But you, what you don't want to do is set yourself up into a situation where the next three or more years of your life is going to be horrendous just because mm -hmm. you got an extra few hundred grand in the deal or, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, whatever else. Always, always, always has to be a cost benefit calculation. And usually for me anyway, it's, it's more of a personal cost benefit thing. It's less about the money, more about the time. You're right. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, JB Brown, uh, this has been fun. This has been good fun. Yes. I know that you have a podcast, an emerging podcast, so we should give that a plug. Yes. It's called the great defectives and we do talk about mergers and acquisitions, but I have a unique fascination in the intersection of greatness and business. And there's this concept that, you know, we are limited by the things that are weaknesses or that make us defective. And, and uh, I contend that those actually often end up being some of the superpowers that we have. And so mm. we explore that. Yeah. Okay. That sounds fun. I'm looking forward to jumping on that show with you and having that conversation. Yes. I, I know exactly what we'll cover, but I won't, uh, I won't uh, give that away here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, but no, 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 we got to tease it. We don't want to give them everything. Exactly right. Okay, perfect. Well, listen, thank you very much. Where can people reach out to you if they want to get in touch, JB? Whitebuffaloadvisors.com or meetjb.com. I'm also active on social and, you know, all of those platforms. And on stages all over the world. There we go. Yes. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, JB, having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your perspectives, your experiences, and a very colorful story. I'll, I'll, I will say before we wrap up, Nothing good happens in Vegas, particularly you youngsters out there. In the beginning, it feels Stay great. Out. <laughs> but thank you very much, sir, for coming on the show. Thank you, my friend. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.